So I'm gonna be pedantic and equivocate a bit on what I constitutes a popular it. film. I was gonna, I was gonna say that like literally just now, and I was gonna say you can interpret this however you want. No, I do it. Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. Who? <laughs> We are just two dudes from Southern California who study philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit it with impunity and we should probably never try to be punny ever again. I'm Austin <laughs> Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. That's who. Yeah. And this is it, man. This is the end of the year, end of the decade wrap-up show. Are you ready, man? Yeah, man. We've been going for like, what, almost half the decade? A little more than a third? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy, right? I remember where we were when we started this podcast. I remember where I recorded the first episode. I recorded it in my aunt's bathroom when I was living temporarily. Wait, I don't remember. Was I back for summer? I was somehow, I was living in her house temporarily while I was like in transit. And I remember doing the first episode from within her bathroom with like a little yeah. shitty ass microphone. I remember you doing an episode from like a Starbucks or a coffee shop and there were people talking the whole time. I was like, dude, what the fuck? Bro, I did an episode in a hostel, in the bar of a hostel <laughs> yeah, in Dublin, that. Ireland. Do you remember that? That was awful. That was so awful. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. We did some weird shit, man. But um, <laughs> anyway, this episode is going to be us asking questions kind of prepared questions about the past decade to one another. So from the kind of more serious and philosophical to the athletically and hobby-based stuff as well, I'm sure. <laughs> so we'll definitely get into that. But I do want to say before we get into this, that we actually have a new sponsor running for a little while. You all know, if you've been listening, that I have a new obsession. And my new obsession is swimming so um we have actually gotten a sponsorship from a really awesome swim company they're called engine swim and it's crazy because normally they just sponsor like professional athletes it's the director of the company is a guy by the name of andrew lauderstein who's an australian olympian and he like they're a badass company they all their gear is like like troy was looking through the website and what did they call it like high performance gear like yeah performance suits man performance suits it's not like swimsuits it's a performance <laughs> suit um and if you look at all the athletes that they sponsor they're legit top-notch like triathletes swimmers at the amateur level and at the professional level etc cetera, etc cetera. and um they have graciously decided to sponsor our uh, little podcast here. I, you know, I was like, well, you know, it's like philosophy and um, lifestyle podcast because I talk a shitload about swimming and manscaping and <laughs> skincare regimens. So they were on board for it. But anyway, if you go to engineswim.com and you purchase anything at checkout, you will get a 20% discount if you use the checkout code OWLS. That's O-W-L-S. So go to engineswim.com and look at all their stuff. They've got swim goggles. They've got backpacks. They have athletic gear that's not necessarily swim related, but just like athletic gear, shorts and shirts and tank tops and 
tighter clothes for both men and women. Um, and really, actually, wherever you fall in the gender spectrum, I guess that doesn't matter, right? Um, but uh, and then they also do have those performance suits, and then they have like just regular, I guess we would call them speedos, like the trim ones. Then they also have like the longer ones that are like the cool, sleek ones that look like spandex pants. Those things are great. Those things make you feel like a fucking dolphin, by the way, when you're swimming in the water. Um, they have <laughs> swim caps. Didn't they have- you read Thomas Nagel? You don't know what it's like to be a dolphin. No, I know. I've communicated with them before. So uh, I have I have seen them glide through the water, and I have felt that gliding. What is it like to be a dolphin would be uh, my essay, my philosophical essay. What it feels like is wearing engine swim clothing. That's what it fucking feels like. <laughs> um, but they've got goggles. They've got backpacks. They've got cool neoprene backpacks. Uh, they've got hats. They've got um, all kinds of other accessories and things like that. So go to engineswim.com. They also have some Christmas specials running right now. And like I said, if you at checkout use the promotional code OWLS, O-W-L-S, then you will get 20% off. And they ship all around the world. So you don't have to be in Australia. They are Australian-based, but you could be in America, UK, France. You could be in Nigeria, for goodness sake. Just get your badass dolphin swim gear at engineswim.com. And don't forget also, if you want to support us in other ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access to several different things that we offer to our loyal patrons, including the monthly newsletter, which has extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves and recommendations in it, as well as access to bonus episodes and the ability to vote in the upcoming patron sponsored episode. So get on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have any reviews to tackle? Um, I don't believe we do. Do we have any other housekeeping? I don't believe we do. Let's get into these decade questions. Let's get into these decade questions, homie. You go first because this was your idea. So the floor is yours. So I'm asking you the question first, what you're saying? Oh, wait. Uh, Oh, I guess I should ask you a question first, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, I'll ask you a question first. All right. Decade questions for Troy. First one. What popular film this past decade do you think has been the most overrated? So I'm going to be pedantic and equivocate a bit on what I constitutes a popular it. film. I was, go- I was going to say that like literally just now. And I was going to say, you can interpret this however you want. No, I, you just do it. Okay. No, because I have different answers for different um, intentions of popular, right? So okay. is popular just in terms of box office or in terms of like critical appeal or both some combination of the two? So what I did is I went on to IMDb's um, top films, um, top rated films of the decade. And in their list of like the top 250 films, there's probably 10 or so that are from this decade. Okay. And so a few of them that I found that I think are definitely overrated for different reasons and in different magnitudes Um, of the, just in terms of popularity, in terms of like, you know, cultural appeal and stuff, the, uh, some of the Avengers films, specifically like the first two, really just kind of the whole franchise. And for reasons we've talked about ad nauseum in this podcast, and so I don't have to recapitulate all that stuff, right? But just the idea of um, pure fan service without any sort of challenging material, right? Um, we've talked about that before. They're not bad films. They're not awful. They're not like eyesores or anything like that. Although the second one was definitely an eyesore. Like I was confused the whole time about what was happening. Um. I don't even remember. That, was that Age of Ultron? Yeah, yeah. I literally don't even remember it. But who really even, I mean, yeah, me neither. But who really cares about that? We talked about it before. In terms of like 
popular and also critically acclaimed. Okay. I couldn't decide between three films, and I want you to kind of uh, help me figure out which one is the most overrated. Okay. One is Green Book, which we talked about in the podcast before. Oh, yeah. One best picture um, definitely was uh, viewing why racism, racism is bad through a white person's eyes. Um, and not a bad film, actually. I watched it and was actually surprised that it wasn't as bad as I expected. It's certainly a good film just in and of itself, but um, was certainly wasn't like um, the a cultural impact. didn't have the cultural impact that uh, you would think it might have given its status in the uh, winning Best Picture and stuff like that. And then the other two films would probably, I think, are actually get, have me a more visceral dislike for were three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I just did not like and thought it was was bad. <laughs> and like really came out kind of angry after watching it. Mm. And then Gone Girl, which I also came out angry after mm. watching it. Uh, although this was many years ago, so I don't remember as much about it. But I remember coming out of it thinking, this movie is awful. Everybody in it is awful. Everybody making it is awful. And I never want to think about this movie again. And I never mm. did until today. So thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Do you have any any thoughts about which of those should take the cake? I'm surprised you didn't say like Lincoln. I, I never thinking, actually saw Lincoln. I was thinking Lincoln. I never saw it, if you can believe that. I never said, you know what I want to spend the next two and a half hours doing? Watching Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is always going to get acting attention. Like he could do anything, right? And he's going to get nominated. Um, so his performance is transformative and bravura and all of those terms that we could heap upon him, those terms of praise. But, you know, I just kind of thought that it was kind of overrated. Um, that would have been my choice, I think. But of the three you mentioned, um, uh, I mean, Gone Girl was just so popular because of the book, right? Um, yeah, and the stars in it were big. What was it, like Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike? Was that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ben Affleck's on his resurgence at this point, you know, after his fall from Grace with Gigli, and then he kind of climbs his way back with the town and then various other things that he directs and whatnot. You know, he kind of... He's not reached his peak yet since he, you know, mall rats. So, <laughs> so I mean, I don't know. I kind of remember enjoying Gone Girl. I think Green Book, it's one of those relative things. Like, it's not a bad movie. It's just relative to the praise that it got. Then exactly, yeah. the problems become more kind of protracted. Um, and then Three Billboards, I fell asleep in. So I don't really have anything <laughs> to say about it. I, I, like, don't even remember it. I just remember the the hubbub. So... Yeah, Three Billboards was just kind of, it was nihilistic in a way that was not, to me, interesting or important or saying anything that was worth giving the time over for, right? Mm. I do think in some sense that it's, it's a clever movie in certain ways, and I've liked the movies that, um, I forget the name of the director, uh, Irish guy, right? Yeah. Um, but he's he's done before. But um, yeah, it, M- it's Martin a certain McDonough. kind of nihil- Yeah, Martin McDonough. There's a certain kind of nihilism that makes you feel like the the filmmakers and creators are giving you the middle finger for coming to watch this movie mm. a little bit. Um, and, and, and not in like an ironic, clever way, but in like a, this is actually a serious thing that I'm doing by flipping you off. Um, that, that made me a little upset. Mm. I didn't like it. And I don't really get upset that easily. So thanks three billboards. Yeah. All right. 
Over to you. All right. Next one. Austin, which movie the last decade affected you the most? And I left it ambiguous as what affected means so you could interpret it as you wish. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I actually struggled with the word affected because I, I thought about it in two different ways. And I, I actually answered it in two different ways with three different films. So <laughs> um, the films that affected me most potently were a film called Smashed by James Ponsolt from 2012 and a film called Like Crazy by Drake DeRemus that stars Anton Yelchin. Um, those films had a great affective impact on me for a couple of reasons. So Like Crazy, I'll start with. I was in a long-distance relationship when I saw this film in 2011, 2011, 2012. That was a long time ago, dude. <laughs> yeah, and this is Shit. a... F- yeah. And this is a film about a couple who meet. He's American. She's English. They meet in America while she's studying here. And she overstays her visa to stay with him. She goes back to the UK. She tries to come back to visit him. And she's been barred from entering the country for whatever duration because she overstayed her her visa requirement or her visa allotments, right? And so then it's about them kind of dealing with that long distance tension he can go visit her but then she can't come visit him and then they start seeing other people actually jennifer lawrence is in this before she gets fucking crazy uh huge by the way um so she's one of the girls like the i guess the girl that he kind of has a tryst with after they kind of go through some of their problems and they break up for a little bit or whatever oh yeah i remember you talking about this before on the podcast now yeah back to me yeah, this movie for me, it it was affective at one level. I remember the first time I watched it. I was on an airplane. I believe I was between Chicago and California. Oh no, I'm sorry, between Chicago and uh, the UK. I, that's it. I was I was coming back from the UK or some. Or I'm sorry, coming back from Chicago um, to the UK where I was living at the time, and I watched this, and it um, man, it fucked me up. I remember I was just sitting and I think I had like the row of seats to myself and I just remember fucking like crying and shit and it just really fucked me up because my girl and I at the time were having similar those tensions. She was living in California and I was living in Scotland and so yeah, that was brutal, man. So that film affected me in that way. Um, And then the other film, Smashed, was a film by James Ponsel. This is the film that he did before he did like The Spectacular Now, which I actually really like as well, but smashed okay. isn't as technically a good film as like the spectacular now is but it uh affected me in such an interesting way to the point that i actually don't really ever want to watch it again because it had such a profound impact on me that i feel yeah. like if i watch it again i'll see more of the cracks in the script and i don't want to ruin the lovely experience that i had with the film but it's basically about this couple who are an alcoholic it's mary elizabeth winstead and aaron paul and hmm. um it's a very sort of Similar to Light Crazy, it's a very sort of stripped back film. You can tell it's very improvised, that these actors were kind of given a lot of free reign with the script to kind of work off of each other. And um, it this this couple are, they're like functional alcoholics, like radical alcoholics. And, um, and I don't want to like talk too much about the script or anything like that because it really doesn't matter. Just go see these movies if you're interested. But um, they just had – it had such a profound impact on me. I remember after just seeing the sort of like destruction of what alcohol can do to a couple. And yeah, it's got some like kind of like sentimental elements to it that might be like overly, overly wrought. But um, it was uh, – 
or overwrought, but it was, um, it was just, it, it just hit me so hard that I kind of, it, it's always stuck with me. And then the other reason why those two films really hit me too, is this is when I started to get back into acting after taking a few years off of the entertainment world and the style of filmmaking, that kind of stripped back improvisational acting style is something that was also the style that I was learning, which was through the Atlantic method, through uh, the Atlantic Theater School or the Atlantic Theater Company, um, and then uh, through like their kind of satellite schools that they had uh, in the UK and whatnot. Um, and it was a very sort of like similar style, and so that's another reason why those films hit me. Um, so, but then I I gotta just say real quick the this isn't really answering the question. This is kind of unfair, and I'm taking a long time, but I'll just say this: the films of Lars von Trier. <laughs> Um, all of the films of Lars von Trier. I got obsessed with von Trier. I got obsessed with Dogma 95. I got obsessed again with that stripped back, no fluff and no frills, um, improvised stuff, handheld cameras. Like, let's just let the performers perform. It's about the script, the actors, the story, uh, and that's it, right? Nothing else matters. And so those three things, I mean, even though the von Trier is like a set or a collection, those three kind of had the biggest impact on me, I think, over the last decade. No, and then, of good. course, von Trier films because they're also just fucked up and crazy. And I think that was the first time <laughs> his films were the first ones that I really allowed myself to really get into at an intellectual level. It was him and Terrence Malick, but von Trier was the one because it was Antichrist. That was the film. And it was when the yeah. blogosphere was going crazy in like 2010, like writing all of these think pieces about Antichrist that that in the tree of life and then that was like really what started my journey into like art house cinema so that's those are the ones hmm. no that's good i'm glad you uh you gave it that much of a wide interpretation yes 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 um okay so the next one for t roy here so uh instead of what popular film what popular album this past decade do you think has been the most overrated so I obviously had a really hard time with this since I dedicate much more thought and attention and care to music than to, to film. Um, and so again, I had the issue of what constitutes popularity, right? Because I'm not going to say like, oh, Beyonce's Lemonade or some shit like that. Because right? <laughs> like, who, who really cares? Like, obviously, that might be the most popular album of the entire decade. And I, just I mean, it's not like awful pop music or anything, but I just don't really care. Um, so I tried to think of something that was, that's generally considered to be like critically acclaimed and maybe in some sense, um, an artistic triumph that I just could never really get into. And that would be, um, Grimes, specifically Art Angels, but also Visions. Are you familiar with her at all? Oh yeah. She's the dude. one, the synth pop artist who's, was, or is dating Elon Musk. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like me some Grimes. Yeah, dude. I just, I tried. I tried to get into this stuff and I'm just like, I'll school this into the knife. Like the knife is the good version of this. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't know why I need to, but what this is other than like synth pop, which is trying to be more creative than usual synth pop, but not really being more creative. Um, it's not awful or bad or anything necessarily. I just, I just don't think that it's the like, uh, you know, like synth pop becomes art. Um, sort of piece that some people seem to think it is, which mm. is what the knife actually is. So, you know, go listen to the knife instead of Grimes. I only um, know from the knife, I only know the cover that they do um, of, uh, 
oh god what's that song oh fuck. Uh, the, the, the knife does yeah or the jose gonzalez song yeah that one what's that one called uh teardrops yeah that song that's the only i think that's the only one i really know of theirs and it's great but that's kind of all i know yeah yeah they're 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 great for sure hmm. i also thought maybe like what would be someone that i actually do like but who i think is sort of gets overwrought uh praise hmm. and i'm gonna get yelled at by some people that i know who listen to this podcast um but bonavere man i like bonavere especially his first couple albums, his new like electronic stuff, I think is okay, but not all that great. But even his early stuff, I'm just like, well, this is, this is okay. Like it's, it's good. It's not bad. Like his, his like weird falsetto voice is kind of annoying. And um, like the folk, you know, song structures are not super creative or all that original. Um, Like if you want that style done, I think uh, better, just listen to like iron and wine or something like that. uh, His Mm -hmm. early albums. So yeah, Bon Iver, I think is good, but he's certainly, I mean, I'm seeing like his first couple albums on the, you know, end of decade lists, you know, top 10 stuff. And I'm just like, I don't get that at all. Hmm. All right. Next one. Hit me up. All right. This is what I'm interested in hearing from you. Uh, what is the most surprising way you think you'll change by 2030? Ooh. Yeah. See this, which, in which you'll be in your mid forties. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So this is tough because like. I think I think it's really hard for us to ever know who we are in the present. <laughs> and I think it's really hard for us to be accurate about who we are in the past. And therefore, I think speculations about where I will be in the future are simply fantasies. So let's do the fantasies, man. This is the fantasy. <laughs> Enjoy your symptom. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel like I'm at like a corner right now. You know, I've, I've been dealing this, these past couple of years have been really interesting, but this past year, and then obviously with the health scare, I, I feel like I'm especially at, at like a corner. I'm just reevaluating a lot of stuff. And, um, and so I don't know how far I can take this. Cause I don't know how serious this, I, I really don't know what these words fully mean. So, but I think that I will settle quite a bit and I don't mean in the sense of stasis, like, I don't think I will ever be just, like, like satisfied with, with, like, just simply doing minimal amounts of things or whatever. You know, like, I, I think I am just, like, like, the, what is it, Thomas the Train or whatever? Like, the little engine that could or whatever the fuck it is. Like, <laughs> like I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's just, like, my life motto, right? <laughs> so... But I think I will be more clear and more intentional about only pursuing things that I'm fully invested in. And and that's what I mean by settling. Because I feel like, especially over the past decade in particular, but really my whole life, I've been very much like, um, people say go with the flow, but it's more like I feel like a leaf blown in the wind. But at the same time, uh, I'm like a kite. So I'm not like just a leaf because I'm a kite because I can like ride the wind. Like some people, they feel like they're being tossed to and fro and they don't like it. Whereas me, I'm kind of like, ooh, I like the waves, you know, like (laughs) fucking blow harder, man. And then I feel like I can productively engage with it. Whereas I feel like I think that by 2030, I think that I'll be a little bit more like I'll have, if I'm going to use this metaphor, I'll be more like an airplane fighting against the wind a little bit more. Um, Hmm. And so I feel like... 
I feel like I'm kind of at that corner where I'm cutting out things in my life that I'm trying not to engage as much in. I'm trying not to be as unserious about certain things. Um, I don't think that that necessarily means I'm trying to be more serious, but I'm not trying to be unserious. And I do think there's a distinction there, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think that, that in 2030, I think it'll be interesting, actually, if we could use it as like a time capsule, right? Yeah, right. To That's see how, ac- yeah. But I do think so, that I do think that I will be investing in things and people, and I always do a little bit, but then I also am very diffuse. You know, I, I tend to say mm-hmm. yes to a lot of projects and I tend to participate in just too many fucking things and it saps my my potency and my vitality a little bit and i do think that i'm i'm taking proactive steps to um, mitigate that tendency towards diffusion you think you'll be married and have kids prediction right now yeah see this is the thing i didn't i didn't want to answer like specific like material things i was trying to keep it more abstract cuz i have no fucking hey. clue Hey, a wife and a kids aren't material. They're spiritual. <laughs> They're supernatural. Come on. Yeah. Um, Don't be a reductive materialist here. Or no. Do I think I I really don't know. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I kind of wonder if I will like always be bachelor adjacent. You know? That sounds like a good Netflix sitcom. Bachelor adjacent? Yeah, dude. yeah but i do wonder i do wonder that a lot you know so i don't know i don't know Hmm. all right i'm gonna say yes yeah i think you'll have your your youth pastor job out in the mountains (laughs) wife kids the whole deal a lot of cigars a lot of crap brews listen man there is a chance There's a possible world, yeah. Nearby possible world. Definitely. Okay, my next one for you. What philosophical movement, idea, or trend was your least favorite? So I came up with a few different ones, although, you know, philosophy moves pretty slow. Yep. So the idea that there was a philosophical movement, which is like basically just in the 2010s, is probably impossible. And even if there was, we wouldn't know about it for 20 years <laughs> until like the papers that um, influence the movement or whatever become coalesced as a movement or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very rare that you have something like, say, speculative materialism, which kind of grew up in you know a year's time and like had a name and had several books that were you know like the uh, the harbingers of the movement or whatever. Um, so this is this may not be exactly confined to the 2010s, but it, it, I think it's, it's largely a more recent phenomenon. I came up with three that all kind of circle around the same basic idea. So uh, one is experimental philosophy, which if you're familiar with that is like this, this sort of um, methodological movement in uh, especially Anglo-American philosophy for doing lots of, basically doing lots of like surveys on um, people's intuitions about issues, especially, you know, ethical issues try and import some like, you know, quantitative analysis uh, Mm. methodology into philosophy. Um, And the idea of doing things like that to inform philosophical speculation is not bad at all, I don't think. But there's certainly a sense, I think, in this movement of like basically trying to uh, uh, like make philosophy into a scientific 
discipline and scientific in the like very narrow sense of the way uh, science is done um, in terms of quantitative analysis, like uh, in very narrow disciplines, not the like broad range of of science throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also um, quietism, which is like a movement that's it's more about making philosophy a more of a therapeutic idea and make and less speculative. And then broadly speaking, naturalism or the idea of of make of making philosophy more of a of a scientific discipline or reducing it in some way to purely natural objects, which are also the you know objects of scientific study. Mm. So as you can see, the through line here is the idea of trying to make philosophy more empirical and less mm. a priori. Uh, I talked about it plenty of times before. I don't have to, to like recapitulate the whole argument, but I don't think anything is wrong. Obviously, with dealing with empirical issues, philosophy needs to have a certain structured relationship with the empirical, right? Uh, but the idea that you can reduce it to that, I think, kind of destroys philosophy's efficacy. Uh, there is a priori knowledge, I think, and issues that philosophy can tackle. And its relationship to the empirical should be one that we actually have to like reconsider and think about. Like It's a philosophical issue, what philosophy's relationship to science and the empirical is. It's not just a, well, science tells us what to do and we do it mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Yeah. That's not just because, you know, philosophy is like, you know, science should be like our handmaiden and we're the ones who existed before science or whatever, right? No, it's just about actually thinking about what the relationship is. And there's some sense in which science is going to tell us things and then we have to deal with it, right? Mm. Um, we need to think about why that is and actually uh, have a considered um, kind of theoretical orientation towards science. Um, and the one that's not just uh, sort of passive in the way that I think these movements can sometimes be in their sort of worst guises. Mm. I had not heard of quietism. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a movement in the way that maybe experimental philosophy is, where it's very clear this is experimental philosophy, right? There's even like journals and conferences that are named that. Mm. So it's it's much more diffuse than that. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. All right, next one for you. What's most different about you since 2010? Yeah, this one's also really hard for me, right? It's similar to the last one because the last one's really speculative and this one is really reflective. And, and you already said that reflective knowledge is difficult. Yeah. So I um I was kind of vague here, but I mean, I think just in very broad strokes, what's most different about me, I think is that in 2010 Right. Or let's say at the end of 2009, really, which is 10 years ago now. Right. So what was going on is I was graduating from undergrad and preparing to go off to grad school. Or maybe I had just started or maybe I was already in grad school. But either way, I can't remember, actually. But either way, I was still holding on to a lot of religious convictions. Um. But I think not – like obviously we talk a lot about like beliefs and things like that. And that's great. That's fine. But I think even more about like how to live my life is what I was thinking about. So again, I was in a long-term relationship at this time. I was – or in a serious relationship at this time. It wasn't quite long-term at this point, but I guess it kind of was. But serious relationship at this time. And I thought that I was going down the marriage – kids remember this i probably i was either i was either thinking i was going to be like a theologian 
or um, that I was somehow going to be an academic at this point. And I was thinking like the settled life, the marriage, kids, still going to church Sundays. I was a part of, I was either, if I was still in LA, I was a part of that like the church Copper Hill, which was kind of, I mean, the conservatives called them emerging, but they weren't part of the emerging <laughs> church because they were still fucking Calvinist and they were, you know, um, they were pretty conservative uh, and orthodox. Uh, yeah, but they openly drank beer, dude. <gasps> yeah, we used to drink beer, smoke cigars and play poker. I fucking love that church. <laughs> but um, but so but still, you know, they were still kind of traditional in terms of like how you live your life sort of thing for the most part. Right. And mm -hmm. I think I think that that has changed drastically now that the kind of the the family the career the house the be involved in your church community and serve once or twice a year on a missions trip like that kind of stuff i still was holding on to right at at the beginning of the decade and um and i don't just mean like like the belief elements too, but even like the convictions about what it means to be a good person and how I should live my life and don't drink and don't have premarital sex and stuff like that. Like, even though I was in a sexual relationship with my partner and we were not married, uh, I still felt guilty about it, you know? Um, those were things that were holding on quite deeply. And that shit now has gone out the window. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I have become a hoe, uh, in other words. <laughs> You're a thought. Yeah. But I think that stuff, you know, just like, not necessarily the belief stuff, that has obviously changed, but more just, um, like, praxis, orthopraxy, like how I, what, what I think it means to live uh, has changed radically, to live well, or to live ethically has changed radically yeah dude i mean i went through the same process at just about the exact same time um in different parts of the world and uh it's crazy to think about that exactly a decade ago all that shit was going down i feel like in some way the same person who went through that and in some ways i i can't even i can't even understand how i felt the things that i felt at the time yeah that's why it would not happen the same way now yeah, that's why reflecting is so hard because I, I I sat here for like 15 minutes and I was like, fuck, what did I believe then? <laughs> like, well, who yeah, that was time was I? such a tumultuous time of just not knowing what you believe. <laughs> Subjective destitution, man. That that idea became so just experientially, I don't know what you'd call it. Like, it became clear that that kind of a thing can happen, that you just, all of your sense of yourself and your beliefs about the world are just unwound into nothingness and you're just left with nothing but anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was not great. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, not. All it was right. Both exhilarating and awful at the same time. And you <laughs> felt even more miserable because of the combination of those things. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Your turn. Is there a new type of cuisine that you've tried this past decade that has changed your world a little bit? I'm glad you asked this question because, you know, I think I've mentioned before that I've 
the last maybe two or three years, I've really gotten into um, cooking at home. And I'd always, you know, cooked a little bit, but usually stuff like, you know, Bertolli's or Amy's, um, things you can just throw in like the, throw in the pan and, and cook for 15 minutes and you're done, right? Nothing that's really cooking. Um, in the last couple of years, I've really gotten into cooking a little bit more from scratch and um, not, you know, of my own volition, like I'm following recipes and stuff because I don't have the creativity to actually come up with stuff myself, um, unless it's pizza related, right? <laughs> but one thing I've, I've really just fell in love with the last couple of years, really all Asian food is good no matter what, pretty much, but especially Korean food. And that, you know, obviously isn't just because I'm like creative or anything. Korean food has, has been having a bit of a boom in America the last few years, right? Mm. But from bibimbap and kimchi to beef bulgogi and everything else, it's just all so good and so tasty. And, you know, it seems to me there's, there's many different things about it that are that are so great, but the sauces, man, the mm. sauces are just incredible. Like, have you tried gajujang sauce? I don't know. I mean, not that I can recall by name, but it's possible. It's also called Korean chili paste. If you've gone to like Korean barbecue, you've probably tried it at some point. Okay. But it's like this, it's sweet and savory and spicy because it's a chili paste at the same oh, time. That sounds perfect this, for me. It's, oh my God, it is, I put it on everything. Really? Everything. <laughs> it's just, it's the most amazing, it's it's awful probably for you. I'm sure it's super sugary and um, has all this nasty stuff in it, but it is so good. Like just put gajujang on any any meat or any rice bowl you come into contact with, and it will just make it the most delicious thing you've ever tasted. Mm. Do you do you just like do you make this sauce and then just put it on like I don't know like you're having pizza and you're like I'm gonna put some of this fucking South, this Korean sauce on. I actually haven't tried it on pizza, but that's a great idea. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can you can buy gajuzang sauce um, pretty much anywhere. Okay, interesting. When you said uh, Korean food, I didn't know where you were going to go with that because I was. Um, I think the only thing that I've really ever had that I know of as being Korean is Korean barbecue. Like that's the only thing I know of when I think of Korean food. You know? Yeah, that that's kind of been around the longest, right? But I think more uh, more versions of Korean food are, are making their. Um, making their debut in the States, especially in Southern California. So maybe less so in, you know, Southeastern Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that's not even, that's like the popular Korean food too. I'm sure there's lots more in-depth stuff that's out there uh, that I'm not familiar with, but damn it, it's all good. For sure. All right. This is a question I definitely want you to answer in mm. detail. What's the worst place you've lived in the last decade? Yeah, that's interesting because I've moved around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah that's why yeah uh i've lived in six different countries and within those countries i've moved around into a, quite a few different places within them you know what worst place that i lived this last decade was los angeles <laughs> and wait you do oh yeah because you live in silver lake that's right i forgot and i lived in los feliz but so for people who don't know I moved away for school, then I was gone for a while, then I came back and I was kind of doing a back and forth thing. And then in 2014, I moved back to LA and I thought that I was going to be there kind of permanently. I was involved in the entertainment industry, I was working at a production company, and 
I uh, I thought that that was it, right? Like, because I grew up in the acting world, and when I was in my early twenties, I was an actor before I had my conversion, and then I went through school, and then I started to become a pastor and shit like that, and then I moved out of that. But I thought, like, I I, I felt like I gave up on the entertainment industry, and and never felt right. But I gave up on it for a reason because I uh, kind of got caught up in some drugs, and I was just a fucking I just felt shitty, I guess. I get you would say, and then the spirit got a hold of me and gave me a purpose sort of thing. And so I dropped all that shit. And I thought that my purpose was to like serve God's kingdom. And so then in 2014, I had gotten back into the entertainment industry in the UK. And I uh, had been doing a lot of acting and a lot of producing and uh, even directing a little bit of some, some small things. And I was like, you know what? Like I'm, I'm mature enough now. I can actually go back to LA and I won't get caught up in all the bullshit that dragged me down previously. And so that was kind of <laughs> my thinking and it didn't work. Um, <laughs> I I fell into a lot of the habits. I got sucked into a lot of the kind of industry stuff that that I didn't even realize when I was younger that that was vacuous and that kind of probably affected me in a particular way. Um, but that really potently, especially after going through these deep intellectual and spiritual and like religious experiences over you know the the kind of previous let's say. God, like six, seven years now at this point, or like, yeah, six, seven, eight years at this point. Um, I, I didn't realize like how superficial LA was and how much that just wouldn't fulfill and satisfy me. And so it wasn't even so much that LA sucked per se. It was just that it's not for me anymore, you know? And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of cool stuff about LA, like Silver Lake and Los Feliz are great. I fucking love those little areas in terms of, cafes and shops and good little bars and there's all kinds of like there's a buzz around there because that's where all like the artists live and the young actors and producers and writers and production assistants and everyone so there's a little a vibrancy of creativity going on but it just wasn't for me anymore man um it just i couldn't deal like i think I've, i've used this anecdote a lot but it was i remember where i was i was sitting at this this restaurant that i used to go to all the time with the girl that i was seeing at the time who was also like a girl i was doing a lot of work with um, in like TV stuff and we were sitting down with a producer and I remember him just straight up telling me he was like you know you got to just compromise on your principles and forget all of these um, ideas that you have and you got to just uh, do the stuff that you don't want to do now and you do that for 10 15 20 years he's like and then maybe you'll be able to do the stuff that you really want to do and I was like well, fuck that shit what if I just want to be on like the indie scene for the rest of my life and he's like nah man you won't make any money you can't get any funding he's like you got to basically sell your soul and I was like it's like fuck that and then I started realizing <laughs> that everybody was thinking that way. And I had this TV show that we were optioning with NBC Universal. And I remember being in a meeting with the senior vice president. And I should have been like super stoked about trying to pitch this TV show idea that, that people were into. And and it just felt wrong. And uh, and I think part of it too was like the relationship that I was in just wasn't quite right either. And I was trying to force. This was the reality show you told me about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I was just trying to force a few like square pegs into round holes sort of things. Um, and uh, it just made me like not like L.A. It just, yeah. And so it's funny now because now when I go back, um, I'm like, oh, it's just not home for me anymore. You know, like now I can really just admit it and I can be like, oh, it's just not home. Like it's just not me. It's not for me right now. Whereas before I thought that was it, you know, so yeah, LA. Are you glad you did it though at that time so that it was kind of out of your system? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I guess you could say that. Yeah, and absolutely. And you know what's amazing? My experience there as a producer with the production company and then obviously doing the other stuff with the, the side stuff that I was doing with the TV show and um, some various other projects that I was involved in gave me the skills and the confidence that have enabled me to uh, undertake the adaptation of Inventing the Future. Because in 2016, when I was back in Scotland, I was sitting in a library reading the book Inventing the Future, and I said to myself, this needs to be made into a documentary. And so I got in touch with Nick and Alex, then I got in touch with Verso, then I optioned the script, I secured the rights to it, then I found Isaiah, hired Isaiah, and the fact that it all just came together so quickly was so lovely. Now that was three years ago now, but it's Coming out next year, by the way, folks, people. But um, I would never have been able to undertake that, and I would have never been able to meet the people from Wisecrack, which I've been doing a lot of work with them now, which has obviously helped our podcasts. Like, how many people have found us, have found Owls at Dawn because of Wisecrack, you know? So a lot of great stuff came out of it. Like, not even just because I met people there and I made connections there, but just, like, the confidence and the experience and the skills that I picked up there. So a lot of good stuff did come from it, and it wouldn't have happened. Like, I wouldn't have had that great sort of, like, synthesis between, like, my artistic interests and my philosophical interests that culminated in both Wisecrack and Inventing the Future were it not for that time that I had there. So obviously there are good things that came out of it, and it was the perfect timing to go back and get it out of my system and also learn some skills at that time that really helped me like hybridize the academic, intellectual, philosophical pursuits with the uh, entertainment, artistic pursuits. So yeah. Yeah, it's cool you put it that way because, you know, man, so much of our, as, as different as we are as people, so much of our life experiences mirror each other in these ways. Like, I can't remember we've talked about on the podcast before. We probably have that, you know, um, me and uh, a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, had a pizza restaurant that we owned together in the early parts of the decade. And there are times when I think about, you know, it didn't work out very well, certainly, and in lots of different ways. Um, but there's some sense in which, you know, I wonder that experience, as bad as it was, convinced me that I needed to be back in academic world that, hmm. that was my my world that's where i needed to hmm. put down roots and i wonder if i would have been as confident if i hadn't gone through that experience would i would i still would i like, get through the phd program and you know survive and not have those doubts of is, is this really for me should i be doing something else hmm. if i hadn't had that experience and gotten it out of my system would i really know um what my future should be and have the motivation uh, to you know, to fill it out, and I and, and I wonder. I don't know if I would. You know what? Too there's probably a lot of just, for lack of a better word, there are skills that you learn in business and running your own business that give you that confidence that are gonna like catapult you well in advance of so many other people who are academics who only just went through school, 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 school. And they didn't have that quote unquote real world experience. And I know that that sometimes is a stupid trope that people use. It's like, oh, you go to real world. But that shit actually, it makes you more advanced. Like the fact that I have experienced so much shit outside of academia <laughs> makes me a strange breed yeah. of academic. And it also gives me a confidence in a set of people skills. Uh, administrative uh, administrative skills like organizing conferences and helping with things like that like like just things of being able to go into a situation and kind of just help out wherever I can using the skills that I have uh, analyzing a problem problem solving like that I have those things 
that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And I guarantee you the same shit with you and your business that you ran, right? Yeah, and there, there's something about the the actual skills that you learn, you know, that's true. But it really is a lot more about the how it changes you as a person. Yeah. It just, it, it makes you an adult. It makes you have to get shit done that you don't yeah. really want to do. Uh, it makes you have long-term <laughs> goals yeah. and, and and figure out like the hypothetical imperative, right? Get those necessary conditions down pat. Yeah. Um. So, and that that's the stuff that, you know, it's, it's a possibility you might not get that if you're 23 entering mm. a PhD program right out of your bachelor's or something like that, right? It doesn't mean that it makes you um, better. I certainly wish my, that my past wasn't as circuitous as it was in many ways. Um, but there's definitely, there's some benefits to it too. True that. Okay. Next question. Your favorite question. Who have been your two favorite role players on the Lakers and why? Oh man, this is such a hard question. I, I had sleepless nights over this. Um, <laughs> So the Lakers have only been good at the beginning of this decade and right now in the last few months of the decade. In between, they were awful. So it didn't feel right to pick a role player from the down years because everybody was a role player <laughs> for a number of those years and they were just bad. And so it's kind of hard to... Role players are really your favorite when they're a role player on a really good team, right? Mm. So... I picked someone from the early part of the decade when the Lakers were winning championships and then from right now um, as the two points of the decade where the team was good. So from the old school team in 2010, it's Lamar Odom. Lamar oh, Odom was Lamar. my guy, dude. Yeah. I loved and I would have loved him even more if he existed now because his game is so well suited to the way it's played today. Lamar Odom, he was a 6'10", lefty, super skilled, great ball handling, great passer, um, super fun game to watch because he was uh, such a highlight reel and so unselfish at the same time. And I love those big forwards who, with passing skills and dribbling skills, you know, like triple threats. Yeah, That's the best kind of player to watch. Um, and in addition to like his actual game, he was also really like a mercurial guy. He had a kind of tragic childhood. I think like his, um, like his dad walked out on his family and his mom died when he was young, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Uh, he had some friends, several close friends and family members, like brothers, I think maybe, who died through like um, because of interactions with like the drug trade mm. um, in uh, in New York. I think uh, really tragic life. I think he had a a baby who died from SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, when he was a couple months old. Just really tragic shit. And then you, you may have heard a couple of years ago he. I think uh, overdosed in a Vegas casino or something and had like massive brain damage. And um, he didn't actually die. People were expecting him to not, to not make it through. I think it was a but bunny ranch that he was at. Oh, was it? Yeah. Something like that. But yeah. Yeah. Just really tragic shit. Like nobody shouldn't have to go through the kind of stuff that he's been through in his life. Um, but he's still trucking. And you know, when that all happened, the outpouring of love that came from hmm. all of his former teammates and fans just really showed how people just felt for this guy. Like you can be a millionaire and have all the success in the world and win championships and everything and still have just a life full of tragedy. And hmm. and he did. And um, I think that that in addition to his game really makes you feel for him. You know, one of the things um, I will always associate him with is remember when they were focusing on how he like ate a bag of candy every day or some shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was that real or was that just like a joke thing? I'm sure he ate a lot of candy. 
but it was For ridiculous. Sure. Like he had a guy that like was his candy. Yeah, his candy supplier, guy. Supplier, remember? <laughs> and I think they're like they're like all these like little YouTube videos or documentaries or whatever. He would like buy bags of candy for Lamar, and Lamar was just constantly like chewing gum or eating Jolly Ranchers or whatever. He like always had something sweet in his mouth. <laughs> Yeah, dude, he lacked it in life, so he needed it in candy. I guess, um, but dude, can you imagine if he was around today with like the the modern uh, fitness regimen and dietary specialists and shit like that, and the way that game's played today, having this like six ten guy who can play point guard? Oh my god, he would have been so successful. Mm. Yeah, and then for my current guy, uh, I'm going with Alex Caruso. Oh Caruso guy. yeah, dude. For those who don't know, Caruso is a great story. He's a 6'4", white guy, balding, looks like an accountant. Uh, he went to Texas A&M, didn't get drafted, played in the minor leagues, the G League, for a couple of years. And then just this year, finally, after a number of years in two-way contracts, the Lakers uh, is a full member of the team. And he's really good, like a really good role player. Um, ESPN has this uh, metric called RPM, or real plus minus, which tries to like top-down measure um, your influence on the game, um, which can usually be sort of uh, quantified in terms of uh, plus-minus, like the amount your team scores when you're on the floor minus the amount they give up, right? But then that metric doesn't really uh, sort of um, give the proper dividend to the proper players. Like You can't tell who deserves the, the uh, uh, what would you call it? Who's like the causal mechanism yeah. of, of that, right? So real plus minus tries to adjust it between players, right? For who you're on the court with. And Caruso's second on the team behind LeBron. Wow. He's ahead of Anthony Davis in this metric because he's such a good defensive player, passer, cutter. There's all that kind of stuff that I, you know, not the terribly skilled white guy can do. Um, he's a throwback player in that sense. Uh, and I love him. And he also had this like ridiculous Photoshop this year. Uh, of him working out and being hugely buff and uh, and jacked, uh, straight up like Camille Nanjiani style. He's going to be a Marvel superhero. And um, he got drug tested the next day. I was going to say, he did, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. It's so funny because he, he's... He also has the great, the great nickname, the Bald Mamba, which is wonderful. Bald Mamba. He's not physically skilled as a defender, um, but... He always seems to be in the right place. He draw he drew like four charges in the last game or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it's crazy. He's drawing charges. He gets his hands in passing lanes. He tips balls away. Like there was a play a few games ago where someone on the Lakers score and then the other team was just being lazy with their inbound. And he just like I think I think he came up from behind the guy. And uh, as the point guards dribbling the ball up court, he just kind of pickpockets it. You know, like he does that kind of stuff oh, all the once time. Once a game he does that. Once yeah. a game, he steals the inbounds pass. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, and and it really is great. And then on top of that, as much as you think that he's not very athletic, the motherfucker has hops, bro. Yeah, he does. He is athletic. He's just not uh, laterally athletic, but he can jump. Like, he's like volleyball athletic. Mm. He can get up there. Yeah, I mean, he's got some of the best rebound dunks, right? Because he goes hard. Right, yeah. and he's like total reckless abandon. He'll do it over people. He he did a rebound dunk, a putback dunk over Kevin Garnett, or excuse Kevin Durant, um, last year against the Warriors, which was <laughs> an all time great. You can look that up on YouTube. Oh, that's cool. Okay, then I just have to ask you this, just while we're still on the Lakers subject. So during the time period when they sucked, who's your favorite player? Not role player, but favorite player. Not Kobe. 
I don't know. I mean, those years that they sucked, Kobe was awful. And it was really hard to watch um, coming back from that injury and stuff. I mean, I, so many of those years I just did not like. I mean, I guess probably D'Angelo Russell and Lonzo Ball were my two favorite players. They were the ones I was rooting for the most. Okay. Um, but they were young and inexperienced and not very good for a lot of that time because they were young on a bad team and had bad coaches and had bad players around them. So not a Nick so, Young fan, huh? No, I was not. I was I was not a Nick Young fan. <laughs> I did not like I didn't get the whole like he's a he's a he's a free spirit, man. No, dude, he just he stinks and takes bad shots and doesn't play defense. <laughs> I'm mm. not into it. All right. All right. Next one. What is something that you hated in 2010 that you love now? See, this is so hard because I really don't hate many things. Or anything. Relative to what your expectations are. Yeah. So I actually went with something that's really just been a a developing love over the past year. And it's more, I hated this out of ignorance, I might say. But it's poetry. I think if Mm. you would have talked to me in 2009, 2010 about poetry, I might have paid like some bullshit lip service trying to be a good academic like young like (laughs) as you're supposed to do when you're playing the game but I didn't really enjoy it I didn't get it I didn't spend any time with it I might have had like a very vague appreciation for it but I didn't quite get it now it was right around this time because again I'm trying to think of when it was that I graduated I don't even fucking remember that I took my class on Milton and that really is what opened up my eyes and changed things, right? Um, But even then, it was more conceptual. And it was because I had an amazing teacher, right, Uh, as an undergrad. But I just, I don't think I really got poetry, really. Um, Whereas now I fucking love it. Like, I've been reading it consistently over the past year, I'd say. And um, I... I want to continue to read more, you know, like after I finish with this Whitman, it's like this book called the essentials of Whitman. that's edited by a guy named Galway Kinnell, I think. Kinnell. Um, you know, I, I want to move on to the next, you know, poetry collection and I want to like read more into T.S. Eliot and get into some Dylan Thomas and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'm going to have to go with poetry, man. Yeah. It's awesome. Dude. There's something about, I'm going to talk about this more against the next, uh, next question, but finding a thing that you didn't realize had this intrinsic value to it and then discovering it, mm. you know, like finally seeing the intrinsic value of it and just being enraptured by it. That's such a cool experience to have. Yeah. And it happens over a long period, so it's not really immediate or anything. Yeah, totally. And and poetry really is a practice, you know. I think part of the reason I didn't enjoy it is because I didn't get it. And I don't mean that in like an elitist sense, but – it's like beer. When you first drink beer, you're kind of like, oh, man, it's kind of bitter and it doesn't taste very good. It's an acquired taste, right? And then you learn to appreciate those flavors. And I think it's something like that with poetry that, you know, you first read it and you're like, oh, this isn't this isn't common language. It's kind of stilted. It's weird. You know, there's all the caricatures about roses are red, violets are blue. Troy is beautiful. So, I don't know. Suck on you. his <laughs> Suck on his boo-boo. Um <laughs> You know, like whatever, like like the cheesy rhyming couplets or whatever. But I mean, really kind of. And then, of course, there are all the, the stereotypes the complete opposite way about like, 
like freeform poetry that's like a word I and then completely indented and it's like the word detest and then like the word the letters go down vertically rather than horizontally <laughs> and you're like what the fuck is this you know and so there's like modern poetry that can oftentimes be you know on the raw end of the deal kind of thing because of certain caricatures of experimental poetry and stuff so so i feel like you know there's just a lot of like weird stuff circling around the the concept of just the apparatus that is poetry and so i just didn't really spend much time with it but really starting to the weird thing is though is my foray into poetry has been through philosophy and through like heidegger and post-heideggerian thinkers and then french philosophers and then um, really, I was reading some Justin Clemens, and I read his book, The Mundiad, and that really kind of stoked a real interest. And then meeting my friend Darius, who's been able to kind of like help me see some of the beautiful things about poetry. And then talking about poetry and why he likes poetry and why he's drawn to poetry. And then going to poetry readings, and that's kind of – it's almost like I I forced myself to like it, you know? And now I love it. It's weird. You know, I wonder, not knowing anything about poetry really, you know, when you take like – English lit classes when you're in high school or college. Yeah. You, especially when you get to like, you know, post Shakespearean stuff, poetry is kind of seen as like a linguistic art form alongside other forms of literature. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, here are the great poems and here are the great, you know, like novels and here are the great epics and so on. When we look back and have a history of like the 21st century, are we not going to have poetry? Is it just going to have disappeared as an art form really? As far as like the, the canon is concerned. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder, do they? Because that'll be a, like future people will be like, "What the fuck? Like, where'd this go?" <laughs> yeah, do they teach much contemporary poetry in those classes at all, or does it kind of just stop at some point? You know? Yeah, it feels like it just kind of stops, and no one really explains why. Like, the canon doesn't include poems anymore. Or yeah. Whatever. Obviously, people are still making them, but they're just they're not canonized. Yeah, it's an art form of a bygone era sort of thing. But I mean, similar, maybe you could even say with philosophy, right? Like when you're in school, you learn a little about Descartes. You might learn the name Kant. You might learn a little bit about like sociology and some various figures. And you might learn about a couple of 20th century figures. Like I at least knew Nietzsche and well, 19th century figure, but I knew about some 20th century philosophical figures like Sartre and about like pragmatism and things like that. But like that shit isn't getting taught at all anymore. And so what 21st century figures, like who what, are they going to teach? Like, I mean, is Bedou, is he like a 21st, 20th century, 20th, 21st century figure, you know, like what Marcus Gabriel, is he going to be, are people going to talk about him in the way that previously people talked about like Kant and Descartes? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think that maybe in continental schools, it's more of a problem since there isn't really like a, a towering figure um, after maybe like Derrida and Deleuze. But I think in analytic circles, because of the focus on individual papers, intro to philosophy classes have lots of stuff from the past 15, 20 years. Um, that's pretty normal since they're much more narrowly focused on, on issues like topical issues. Yeah, but don't you have to take philosophy in order to be exposed to that? Yeah. So I'm saying like a, an intro to philosophy class would be kind of similar to like an English lit uh, class, right? Oh yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think future ones will include uh, stuff from around this issue. But yeah, but I think you are right about the idea of like the way we think about the the great systematizers or even the great critics of systemization, like Nietzsche. Right? Mm -hmm. um, we read them because they have like overarching 
views on many different issues, metaphysics and ethics and aesthetics and everything else, right? And do we have anything like that in the last 20 years? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's like a Badu, but that's, there's not a lot, you know? It'll all be like categorical, right? Like bioethics and issues on like technology and oh, here are these figures that talk about AI, da 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 and these figures yeah, that talk yeah, about philosophy exactly. of technology, da 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 yeah. It's hard to see there being a Kant again, you know? Interesting. Which, you know, to be fair, there was only one. <laughs> like Kant is a towering figure because of his influence on, you know, all the different areas <laughs> of philosophy and that doesn't come every 20 years. It can't. Right. All right, moving on. What is the single most impactful or interesting new habit that you've developed over this past decade? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I had three answers to this, but one I've already talked about, and that's cooking. Yeah. Um, I'm going to leave that aside. Another one is um, regularly working out, something I started doing about three years ago and really made a profound difference in my life. Although mm. I don't, I still hate it. Oh, do <laughs> like you? I still don't find it intrinsically valuable. Uh, it's purely instrumentally valuable. Except for when I'm like playing basketball. That's the one thing I do find. Well, you know what you can do? You can go to engineswim.com and upon <laughs> checkout, you can get 20% off of all your swim no, gear. Dude. Swimming then... is so good for you, but I hate doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate doing it. I, I like it more than I like actually like working out in the gym, but you know, whatever. It's harder to do. Dude, with your um, beautiful locks, put it up in one of those swim caps that says engine swim at engineswim.com. <laughs> 20% off owls at check. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. But so the one that I'm going to go for then, um, that I do find intrinsically valuable like cooking, but I haven't mentioned yet is, uh, reading fiction. Maybe oh, yeah. three or four years ago I started, and I, I've obviously read fiction before, but I started every, every evening before I go to bed, spending about half an hour reading fiction just to get away from all the nonfiction academic stuff. I have to read all day and just reading something purely for its own sake purely um, without any intents to use it for anything other than just to enjoy it and to learn from it and to have it challenge me and change me. And spending some time doing that is so important. It makes you just love reading and love the creations other people can make um, and to be challenged in a way that isn't just pure like academic intellectual challenging, which is mm. just like, you know, how am I going to adjust my beliefs based upon this new data? Um, but actually thinking about its significance and its meaning um, and I read lots of stuff. Like I'll read, you know, purely fun stuff. Like I read the whole, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire uh, books, which are together longer than the Bible, hmm. which I couldn't believe after I finished it that I heard that. Um, and then, you know, more like serious uh, novels from um, English and American history and otherwise Russian novels that uh, I just had never gotten to, didn't read in college or in high school. Um, and I get so much out of it. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to do. I look forward to it every single night. Um, and I'd encourage anybody out there, especially academics, read stuff you don't have to read. It sounds mm. impossible because there's so much you have to do. Yeah. Um, but if you already have some time set aside to just veg or just chill and not work, spend some of that reading fiction. It, one, it will make you a better writer because you're reading great writers and a lot of academics are shitty writers. So that will help you one. And also it will stimulate your mind to think about important things that are different than the important things you're doing for work. Uh, I, and you know, I, I don't know if I can trace the ex, like explicitly trace 
how it affects me and maybe makes me a better thinker or writer. Maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but it certainly feels like it does. Mm. Um, and even if so, even if the, the intrinsic value of it, which I get out of it, is not there, the instrumental value I think is also there. Um, so yeah, fiction's wonderful. There's so much great work out there. It's so much more fun to read than academic stuff most of the time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, reading fiction's wonderful. I'm so glad that I made it a habit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I always, I always enjoy reading a good novel, but yet for some reason, it's one of those things that I don't like seek out all that often, which is why you got me excited with your sticky leaves last week about um, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, oh, yeah. Because that makes like, first of all, short stories are kind of just a nice entry point, but also you got me really excited. And then I was actually talking with some friends about like Southern Gothic as a genre and her writing in particular. And so now I'm kind of like really stoked. Maybe that's uh, I don't do the resolution thing in like a formal sense, but maybe that's a kind of something that I can try to, to implement as a, as a habit for the next decade. Yeah, dude, that'd be a great one. Yeah. All right. Next one. Um, what is a core belief that you had in 2010 that you lack now or vice versa? Yeah, this is another one you have now that you lack then. I mean, yeah, uh, this was another hard one for me, I think. Um, but I've kind of talked about this before, but I think, I think a core belief that I had then was, and this, I wrote this down. I said, you know, something about the alliance of Western powers being a form of imperialism. Like I didn't believe this or I didn't get this or I didn't get the extent of it then. And I think I thought that fundamentally the U.S. and its allies, for example, were decent at heart. And, you know, not perfect, but, you know, we're in a broken world. But Like well-intentioned, generally. Yeah, exactly. And that the U.S. was, and I still believed, I think, at the time, that the U.S. was an experiment, like a social experiment that was worthwhile. And I think now I actually don't buy that at all. Yeah, I think I think I've become much more comfortable in being able to say that to myself and out loud that I actually do think of the United States as being like the great dragon, you know, to use language from the book of revelation <laughs> um and i do think that the united states fundamentally operates as a type of um, imperial power that is responsible for um a hegemonic takeover of the world whose influence is rotting and will perpetually continue to rot social political and economic formulations and uh yeah it it's it's exporting its cultural influence which i think is uh you know in some ways fun and then in other ways i think extremely banal and problematic and then it's exporting certain economic instruments and regimes and I think that, that also has negative consequences. And I think I'm much more comfortable feeling that. Whereas I didn't, you know, because 
because I'm trying to think, 2009, 2010, I'm starting to read Zizek for the first time, and Leotard, and I'm reading, like, Latin American liberation theology, and, um, like, Heart and Negri, I think I read Empire, I think, came out, out at around this time, um, and uh, maybe a couple years prior, and, and I'm reading, like, Paolo Virno as well, and so I'm reading some some kind of critical post-Marxist stuff. And then, you know, I'm reading like the early Marx and critiques of religion and stuff like that as well. So so I've definitely got a critical hat on in a, in a formal academic sense, but I didn't quite get it, I don't think, you know? And, uh, and I think now it's much, I'm definitely much more sure. I think it is a core belief of mine that um that yeah that there actually is a problem of uh like a neo-imperial and neo-colonial presence in the world that is spearheaded by the united states and its allies you know what's so interesting about that dude is it seems like the only people who still have that belief after 2010 are like centrist libs right because the right has kind of ditched that idea and been like yeah so we were always about these imperialistic uh, methods to achieve our own ends and fuck everyone else, but we should continue doing that <laughs> and just do it nakedly, right? And so the neocons, and then the, left's, the neocons won. Yeah, and then the left's like, well, you know, we're doing that stuff and it's bad, and so we should stop doing it, right? Um, so it's only these like centrist libs in the middle who are like, no, 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 our influence is good, and sometimes we've made some mistakes, but ultimately the intentions are good and the and the basic idea is sound, and we should continue doing it and just refine it around the edges, right? It's this weird thing where like the two, the one way in which the horseshoe theory makes a little bit of sense, right? Hmm. Is that um, the further sides of the right and left kind of agree on this basic issue uh, about uh, American imperialism, um, just differ as to, you know, whether we should continue doing it, whether it's like, you know, a morally sound thing to do. Um, so yeah, it's like a, it's a weird thing that I think, you know, a lot of people uh, and maybe the institutions of, of the state itself have kind of realized is the case except for a few people who still have the blinders on, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if the blinders are still um, kind of like ripples from the Obama legacy, right? Because he did a lot to, I think, entrench that that ideological bent, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. And so a lot of the people... I mean, it, it was already there in like the Clinton... For the sure. Clinton, I like, you know, NAFTA stuff and stuff like that. Yeah, but like the reason that it it still has momentum now is that it got an extra yeah. push, let's say. It would be gone completely if not for Obama. Yeah, and then how many people do you see that constantly are like, God, like I see this on Twitter every once in a while from big like blue check mark tweet account or Twitter accounts that are like, man, like like and retweet if you miss the Obama years. And it gets like fucking 250,000 likes and however many retweets and you're like, damn, you know, like – they're doing it about Bush, man. If any, if you can like have wax nostalgic about the Bush years, then like, dude, you got to realize nostalgia is a drug. Come oh my on, gosh! <laughs> How can you possibly argue that the Bush years were better than this? Oh man! Other than the fact that like the media and Twitter is just a cynical cesspool 
of sadness and debauchery. Well, because like, I that think part's worse. A lot of people still think that going into Iraq, you know, yeah, maybe they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, but it was still a good thing. We were like being yeah, the good yeah, police. It was very officers. well intentioned. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were the good. Anybody police who officers. believes that's just fooling themselves. You know, Saddam was you know committing humanitarian crimes, and so that's why we went in there. And so I think I think people still think of the United States a lot of times as that like global police force. And to that I say watch Team America, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Did you read any of the, the uh, Afghanistan papers that came out, the Washington Post last week? No. It's really good. I'll probably make it a, a segment on the show at some point in the future. Were they just like like budgetary stuff? Because I know that some of that stuff has been leaked out recently. Or is it more like actual cables about strategy and things like that? Yeah, it's all these interviews that the, the DOD and Pentagon uh, did uh, throughout uh, like 2012 through like 16, something like that. I can't remember. Uh, people who were working in both the, the Bush and the Obama years in Afghanistan and basically admitting that everything they sold to the public was a lie and that they never had any idea what they were doing there. And it was a failure from the beginning. Jesus. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible read. Jesus. Okay. On That's how I note. spent my, my first couple of days after <laughs> the semester <laughs> reading the goddamn Afghanistan papers. Nice, man. All right. Um, last question, yeah? Each? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you could go back and do this decade over again, is there anything you've given up or disbelieved or forgotten or ignored that you wish you could get back? Yeah, so what was interesting is all those hyphenated terms, the verbs given up, disbelieved, forgotten, ignored, are not intentional equivalents. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of options here. Yeah. Um, one option I thought of was like a classic one, like invest more time and effort in friendships. Um, I feel like our decision to do the podcast was such a great thing. Irregardless, irregardless is not a word, uh, regardless <laughs> of whether or not we actually had any success at it, right? Just because it meant we get to have our conversations every week mm. that we have too infrequently otherwise. So that was enough in and of itself. But I haven't been able to dedicate that kind of time to some of my other closest friendships, and that makes me kind of sad. Mm. Um, another option, but that, you know, everyone says that, so that's a universal thing, I think, nowadays. Um, another one I thought of was maybe like, it's interesting, I just got this notification on Twitter that I had my Twitter 10-year anniversary this week. <laughs> and I was like, fuck me, dude. <laughs> This entire decade, oh my god, I've had, I've had Twitter uh, infecting <laughs> my brain. I, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I made a horrible decision ten years ago this week. Um, but really, honestly, the one that I think is maybe a little bit more unique, but I, I really feel uh, some regret over. Or maybe regret's not the right word, but just something I, I wish I had dedicated more time to is is to playing music and playing guitar. Um, oh, yeah. I have these guitars. They're sitting right next to me in the office while I'm recording this podcast. And I just rarely pick them up. And they brought me so much joy mm. in high school and in college years. And I, I dedicated myself to so much. And I played in bands. And it was one of the, you know, some of the best experiences of my life came from um, just fooling around on guitar and playing with people. And it's just not a thing that I do anymore uh, very much. Mm. And occasionally I pick it up and I'll record a cover song for like a family member or a friend or something. Um, but I don't do it regularly um, and I don't keep up with it and I, I lose my abilities um, over time. They become, you know, calcified and that, that bums me out. 
I wish I really had more time to dedicate to that and more infrastructure in place to sort of, you know, motivate me to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I get that, man. I get that. I mean, because part of it is time. And then we can say, oh, we don't have time. And part that, that's partly true. But it's also partly true that we just, we give ourselves to other activities, right? Yeah. And I wonder if I'm giving myself to that hour that I watched, I don't know, Stephen A. Smith rant about fucking the Cowboys <laughs> or whatever. Like, could I not have played the guitar? Or could I not have been singing? Because, you know, I love to sing. You know, could I not have done something like that 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 brings me immense joy and that could be a habit that I could continue to cultivate? Um, but I don't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you really got to have that infrastructure of motivation. It's got to be there, I think, to, to really make it happen. It's really difficult when you've got other things going on to yeah. become, you know, intrinsically motivated. Yeah, that's why if you have a band or if you are part of um, like, like this is the, for some reason, this is the only thing I could think of. But like if you're part of the church worship team, right? Yeah, dude, that was it. I mean, it was bad music. It was bad music. (laughs) But I was a part of so many different worship teams and that keeps you going, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then the weird thing is, is even though it's bad music and it keeps you going, it actually inspires you and motivates you to like play music with other people and outside of that, just because you're already doing it, you know? It's such a good thing to play music with people, man. It's like a spiritually yeah. uplifting thing. Totally is. It's meaningful. Totally is. Well, you can even be the lead. <laughs> you can be the worship leader at my home church in 10 years. Yeah, dude. Can we do a little bit of, a little bit of metal? Fucking a crowbar, man. Some, uh, <laughs> Uh, Lamb of God. Wait, no, Lamb of God aren't Christian. What's the... No. What's Striper, the, dude. Let's do some Striper. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, there's a fucking like heavy metal, like black metal Christian band. What were they called? Stavesaker? I mean, oh, well, they weren't metal, but yeah. Oh, I don't even remember who they were. I just remember seeing like the t-shirts and shit. What were well, they? Well, they were like Crucified. Uh, one of the guys was Crucified before then, which is a thrash metal band. They were great. Really? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's like, remember Demon Hunter? They were like a new metal band. No, I do not remember that. Oh my god, go back and listen to Demon Hunter. They were like a an awful new metal band in the mid 2000s that was a on like a Tooth and Nail or Solid State or one of those Christian labels. Oh man, oh, so man. good. <laughs> oh man, yeah, my buddy's band was on Tooth and Nail Project 86. Oh yeah, fucking, I loved Project 86, man. There I saw them live. So, yeah, Randy, yeah. the guitarist, Randy's a buddy of mine. He actually produced one of my old bands, one of our old songs. But he's, uh, yeah, they were fucking. I was. I was I was like obsessed with them for about God ten years. Oh yeah, dude, they were great. So good, they, and the lead like singer Schwab, he's actually Andrew like Schwab, yeah, yeah. His lyrics are like super clever and introspective. Like even now, I think I would find value. You know, I didn't oh, yeah. get them when I was a young Christian because they were actually like existential lyrics. <laughs> You know, there's like doubt in here, man. This is bad. Yeah, 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 totally, dude. And like, actually, have you read any of his poetry or anything like that? Oh, yeah, I was huge into them. Okay, yeah, yeah. So like, it's like legit shit. Like when I was at Masters, I kind of got, got got into that a little bit. So yeah, man, anyway. <laughs> That's right. a blast from the past, dude. Damn. Fuck, yeah, dude. <laughs> All right, last one for you. If you could go back and change one thing about the last decade, uh, what would it be? And no cheating by saying you don't have regrets because you're Austin. Just as far as you're concerned, what would you change with the last No, decade? you know, here's the thing, man. I like that you put the, the, the parenthetical 
But I actually, there are a lot of things that I would change. Okay. A, a ton of things. But I'm going to surprise you with one. I think this is one I think about a lot. And I don't know how serious, because of course, I'm going to do the thing where it's like, but every experience that I've had has led me here. <laughs> da, 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 da. Of course, that is true. But I think about this all the time. Where would my life be if rather than move to England and go to Nottingham for my master's degree, I would have done my master's degree at Duke? Because yeah, I Yeah, you've mentioned this before, I remember. I got accepted and I wanted to go, but it was a little bit more expensive, actually quite a bit more expensive. Um but I have thought about this a lot and I wonder, because Duke is a top 10, top 15 university academically, we'll say top 20 at least, academically, and it's a fast track to like Ivy Leagues. So I have a feeling, had I gone to Duke, I probably would have gone to like, like maybe like, either like stayed at Duke to do like a PhD or gone to like uh, one of the Ivies to do a PhD, right? What do you think it would have been in? Because you Prob would have been doing like religious studies and theology from like a, a more liberal theology yeah. perspective at Duke. I right? think about that a lot too. I don't know, but like people like Jay Cameron Carter are at Duke, so oh, like critical race theory, critical kind of race theory stuff. Yeah, I think. And then there's like there's like Hauerwas, but then you know someone like Dan Barber went to Duke, and so mm. like his work is all weird and Deleuzian, but also like Yodarian at the same time. So you're like, what the fuck? He'll like quote. Assad, Talal Assad, he'll quote Yoder, and then he'll quote Deleuze all in the same fucking paragraph. And, and then like, Pope Gregory, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what the fuck is going on here? So, I mean, it could have been something like syncretistic like that. Or I, I might have like stayed more theologically adjacent than moved straight into philosophy and done like religious studies or like maybe gone on to like Princeton Seminary or some shit like that. Like, could you imagine? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> but like it could have been something like that but i don't know i don't know but i do feel like i do wonder that quite a bit and even though i don't think i i would like to fully just be an academic theologian or an academic like religious studies scholar um uh i do i do i do like wish i could take that timeline you know hmm. do you think if you hadn't worked with philip goodchild that you would have the current interest in financialization and stuff like that that you have now? You know, it is so funny, dude, because I'm coming back to him now. So, like, I still think that Theology of Money and Capitalism and Religion are two of the most important books that I read in my life. And I think that they're two of the most underrated books in critical theory. Um, and, uh, like, even Martin Koenig's like cites him. I've talked with Martin quite a bit about Philip's work and I'm trying to like re-engage with some of Philip's work because, you know, there's this new massive book that we talked about by Eugene McCarer. Um, so I think that there's this really interesting matrix of a lot of stuff that's going on in like, um, like let's say like critical investigations, like anti-capitalist or critiques of capitalism from, um, uh, from various perspectives, from like Marxist, post-Marxist, Eugene McCarrer's romantic um, perspectives. And I think that Philip offers something so unique that a lot of these other individuals aren't looking at. 
And I think it really did like set a trajectory. It was weird. It was almost like it, it laid some seeds, but it just took almost 10 years for them to start to really blossom. You know? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I like to think about those, those little moments that set you in a trajectory that uh, stick with you for good, even if you don't realize it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I read this like collection of books, got a collection of uh, essays. I can't remember what it's called right now. It's called like, um, Oh gosh. It's like, Oh, like social wealth and derivatives or the, like the social wealth of derivatives or like derivatives and social wealth. And it's edited by like Randy Martin and it's got essays by Eli Ayash and Arjun Apadurai and various other figures. But anyway, a lot, when I'm reading through a lot of these essays, I'm like, man, these people would benefit so much if they engaged with Philip's work a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I am kind of excited in that sense to kind of like, maybe like introduce him to some of these, these theorists that are doing like critical work on derivatives and financial speculation um, in the critical finance literature. So that's kind of cool. But I still, I nevertheless, I wonder if I would have taken that alternate timeline all the time, if I would have gone to Duke, what would have happened? Yeah, dude. I want to see that uh, uh, historical fiction. Yeah, me too, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was it. That's it, dude. Yeah. Oh, we're done. Oh, sweet. That's the it. <sighs> well, sweet, man. I'm actually sweating. It is warm in my room right now. <laughs> what is it, like 1 o'clock in the morning? 2 o'clock in the morning? It's coming up on 2 o'clock. Holy shit. Yeah, dude. So, well, happy new year. Happy new decade. Even though these designations are arbitrary bullshit that are still a part of this weird calendar that was part of my shitty minute a while ago that is common era, but they're still using the same fucking dates as the old Christian calendar. Weird shit. Happy New Year anyway. And happy decade anyway. That was your weirdest shitty minute of all time. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I was just in a grumpy mood, I think. <laughs> I don't know what I was saying. But... Yeah, man. Um, as we end the year, I guess I could say thank you for another wonderful year to you, Troy, and also to the listeners. Um, I really do love this podcast, man. It uh, it is great. It is it is that institutional framework that kind of like forces yeah, <laughs> me to. It forces our friendship, uh, but also it like really does challenge me in a lot of um, in in really like intellectual and personal ways. So I. Uh, I look forward to the next year too. Ditto, man. I'm excited about it. We got some, some cool things on the on the horizon. Yes, we do. So, thank you, motherfuckers, for listening. Don't think we have anything to say. Go to enginswim.com, get your athletic gear, swimming gear, etc. etc. Owls at checkout, you get 20% off. Patreon.com slash owls at dawn, get access to bonus content, all that other good shit. And um, I think that's pretty much the last thing that I- we got to say in the year 2019 unless there's anything you got to say send us out this is one more thing i can think of for this decade what's that dude das the 2010s yeah.